0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
1: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. People have long believed fresh coastal breezes are good for health. Turns out that's true in Georgia. According to a new report on air quality from the American Lung Association, coastal Georgia has some of the best air in the nation. The same report gives the air quality in five metro Atlanta counties a failing grade. Paul Billings is National Senior Vice President of Public Policy at the American Lung Association, and he's joining us from NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. Paul, welcome. Thank you for having me on. This study confirms that many Georgia residents may have suspected. Atlanta has 10, 12 lanes of highway at its core, the world's busiest airport, a lot of dirty air, and trains are running all throughout the state and power plants. So those fresh coastal breezes feel cleaner. But what criteria did this state of the air study use to quantify that?
2: We look at the monitored pollution data that the state and local governments collect with air pollution monitors and report to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And we judge that air quality against the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. And we looked in this report at the air quality data for 2015, 16, and 17, which are the most current years where we have fully quality-assured quality check data. We found some pretty alarming results in Georgia and across the country.
1: So how does Georgia stack up to previous studies? Because you do this, what, annually?
2: Uh, This is our 20th annual report. So we've been doing this for a long time. We've been tracking progress for a long time. And the air is getting cleaner um, in Atlanta, but it's still uh, 25th on our most polluted list for ozone. It was uh, 23rd last year, but it had slightly fewer number of unhealthy days uh, this year because other uh, uh, cities did worse. Uh, It's Atlanta's 19th on our most polluted for year-round particles and 64th on our... uh, Uh, short-term particle pollution list.
1: So what is the particulate that you are measuring? What's in it?
2: We look at uh, very small particles. They're smaller than uh, 2.5 microns, and and these penetrate deep in the lungs, and these come from combustion of coal-fired power plants, diesel, uh, wildfires. Uh, They also form in the atmosphere from uh, gaseous emissions like sulfur dioxide or nitrogen oxide. Uh, Cars and trucks are a big source of nitrogen oxide.
1: So what does that mean for somebody's health? You said these little teeny, teeny particulates, mass in people's lungs.
2: Yes, the, the particles get past the body's natural defenses, penetrate deep in the lungs, and they can cause coughing, wheezing, shortness of breath in healthy adults. But for people with asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, they can have an exacerbation and end up in the hospital. And we also know that particles are linked with premature death from heart disease, lung disease, uh, so that they, and they are also linked to causing lung cancer. So these are serious pollutants that can cause serious harm.
3: All
1: right. Let's look at some of the regional grades and start with the bad news. You group an area labeled Atlanta, Athens, Clark County, Sandy Springs, 19th, as you said, worst in the nation for annual particle pollution. So why should we care about that? I mean, why is that so grave?
2: because these particles are so uh, dangerous and so deadly. So we don't want to be, uh, be breathing dirty air. And the Clean Air Act promised everyone clean and healthier to breathe, but yet we're still falling short. And so uh, Metro Atlanta is, is 19th on, on our nationwide list, which means it's uh, not doing very good. And that same area ranks 64th in
1: 24-hour particle pollution. So what is that? And why is the rank for that a little better?
2: Um, well, we look at particle pollution in two ways. One is the year-round, day-in, day-out exposure where we know health harm occurs, but also we look at the short-term spikes where we see uh, uh, days or hours where we see very high levels of particle pollution. And so we look at it, the, the report in both ways uh, to be able to give a, a more complete picture uh, of the pollution that we're experiencing. And, and Atlanta's doing a little bit better, um, being 64th on, on that list, and essentially unchanged from last year's report.
1: All right. DeKalb, Fulton, Gwinnett, Henry, and Rockdale counties all receive an F for ozone pollution levels. Tell us what that means to to earn a failing grade for air quality.
2: So in our report, we look at uh, days that are uh, code orange, code red code purple and code maroon under the air quality index. And we calculate those grades and give a weighted average of the number of days that people breathe unhealthy levels of ozone or smog. And then we calculate that grade uh, based on a a grading scheme uh, that says this has too many days of of unhealthy air. And what we know from the monitors in the metro Atlanta area is that far too many Georgians are breathing uh, high ozone on uh, too many days uh, each spring and summer and fall.
1: And in that scale, the, dent, the darker color, meaning purple, much worse than orange?
2: Yes. Uh, the color coding is to provide some warnings to the public. So uh, orange is unhealthy for sensitive groups, but there's a sensitive uh, group in every family, young, old, people with lung disease, heart disease. And then as you go, go up the scale, um, the pollutants become hazardous for everyone.
1: So what about ozone exposure in particular? Why is that measured differently than other
2: particulates? So ozone is is a uh, gas that is formed when volatile organic compounds, like uh, fumes you smell when you're refueling your car with gasoline and nitrogen oxides that are a byproduct of combustion cook in the atmosphere and create ozone, which is a form of oxygen. It is a powerful respiratory irritant and it can cause what uh, physicians like do a sunburn in the lung where the cells start to weep, get that redness like you feel with the sunburn. So it can cause a really significant harm to the lungs. And it also makes you more susceptible to allergies and infections that can um, further uh, compromise the health of individuals.
1: In Atlanta, pollen, throughout the state, but in Atlanta, it's been terrible this year. Uh, allergy and asthma gives a daily count for the metro region. Anything over 1,500 considered to be extreme. And that count topped 6,000 earlier this month. So does that factor in your, to your research at all? Does it make a difference if it's pollution or pollen that makes city residences' lungs
2: irritated? Well, we we do know that ozone pollution makes people more susceptible to allergens like pollen. We also know that climate change is making both ozone and particulate pollution worse. And and we also know it makes the pollen season longer. So all these things are working together uh, to make people less healthy or to threaten their health. So it's really important for us to address both the pollution, but also people to take steps to safeguard themselves from exposure to pollution or pollen.
1: Does the proximity to the Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, the busiest in the country, in the world actually, worsen pollution?
2: Certainly, airports are a big source of precursors for both ozone and particle pollution. So we see uh, emissions from uh, motor vehicles for people coming to and from the airport, from ground uh, operations, as well as the airplanes themselves, and the refueling operations all contribute to elevated levels of pollution, both at at the fence line, people that live in the neighborhood, and people that live downwind from uh, the airport.
1: What are some of the other significant sources? You mentioned motor vehicles.
2: Uh, power plants, particularly coal-fired power plants, and you still have plenty of those in the Southeast in the United States, uh, produce a lot of pollution, and that pollution can travel hundreds of miles. Also manufacturing operations, uh, refineries, and, and o- other uh, s- small sources like uh, dry cleaners that use chemicals can also contribute to air pollution.
1: We're speaking with Paul Billings, National Senior Vice President of Public Policy at the American Lung Association. The organization's new report on Georgia air quality is out. Uh, Some improvement, but not so great in a lot of different places. Paul, we knew that the Atlanta Regional Commission studies the effect of vehicle emissions on air quality, releases periodic heat maps of sorts that show how gross, really, the air is in Atlanta's down-down connector. So when we're driving, should we set our air conditioners to circulate air inside the car? Would that actually make a difference for our lungs?
2: It can make a little bit of a difference to, to do the recirculation rather than bringing in uh, the uh, outside air. Uh, many um, new cars have uh, better filtration systems than uh, cars a generation or two ago. But ultimately, what we really need to do is to uh, reduce the sources of pollution, the combustion. Uh, electrification of, of transportation would go a long way to help reduce those exposures on the road and near the road.
1: All right. Let's look at some of the better grades. Counties near the coast, Chatham and Glynn counties, earned A grades. What kind of conditions make air so much better on the coast?
2: Well, I think that they're blessed by favorable breezes from the ocean helps a lot to reduce pollution and disperse pollution. That is probably what we see the most in our report uh, in coastal areas that uh, enjoy good air quality. And then there are also other factors like the number of cars and the proximity to uh, these other major sources. But at the end of the day, uh, we think that the favorable winds are uh, what's really helping the most.
1: So Augusta's Richmond County got a good grade despite being a fairly large urban center, not near the coast. How did Augusta succeed where Atlanta has failed?
2: You know, topography also plays a role. Uh, Where the pollution sources are in relation to where the monitors are can also influence the report. Um, So we are seeing, and we are seeing tremendous progress across the country. So we we have many fewer days in this year's report than we had on a report 20 years ago. We have seen a slight uptick uh, this year in some communities as well.
1: What is the heat and the particular climate of Georgia and the region do to trap
2: that air? So we see when we have those inversions that hold uh, polluted air in, we see elevated levels. We also know because of climate change, we're seeing uh, more hot days. Heat is a major factor in creating ozone. You need heat and sunlight to cook those pollutants in the air to create ozone. We're also seeing the impacts across the country of climate change in drought and dry conditions that lead to wildfire and wildfires. Uh, close by and hundreds of miles away are contributing to pollution uh, in our urban areas across the country.
1: Yeah, well, people enjoy life in the Georgia mountains. Breathe can breathe a little more easily. The reports are really good there. But what about other parts of the state where data isn't reported? Is it mostly in urban centers?
3: The
2: state and and the local governments. Uh, deploy monitors based on guidance from the US Environmental Protection Agency. The American Lung Association would love to see more monitors so we'd have a better, more full picture of the pollution across the state. But we do know that because of where the monitors are, we get a good picture of how many people are exposed to pollution day in, day out uh, across the state.
1: Pollution can have serious health consequences for children, older people, asthmatics. As you mentioned, who is the most affected? Uh, across a state by, or across any area, by polluted air?
2: Well, certainly um, children, seniors um, are impacted, but people with uh, lung disease and heart disease, particularly people with asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, are especially vulnerable to the impacts of air pollution. Their lungs are are more sensitive, uh, they may have less uh, breathing capacity, and so air pollution can really dramatically uh, exacerbate Uh, their condition can cause an asthma attack that can cause a child to end up in the hospital gasping for breath.
1: So you at the Lung Association report on this kind of air quality. Do you do anything or what do you do in the way of policy decisions or advocacy for better clean air?
2: So we're hard at work uh, pushing the Environmental Protection Agency not to weaken the Clean Air Act. We've seen many attempts in this administration to roll back Uh, safeguards to clean up power plants, motor vehicle pollution, uh, oil and gas operations. And so we're fighting very hard to stop those rollbacks. And then we're pushing uh, state and local governments to continue to implement the law and to deploy cleanup strategies to improve the air that we breathe.
1: How about people who are listening to this? Can they use this information to better protect themselves and their families?
2: Certainly, you can log on to lung.org SOTA and see the report and see the grades for your county. And, and also on a daily basis, you can check the air quality index to determine whether it's a code orange day, code red day. And if it is a high pollution day, take steps to protect yourself, like not exercising when air pollution levels are high, but also do your part to help reduce pollution by driving less, by consolidating trips, turning off that extra light. Every little bit can help.
1: Paul Billings of the American Lung Association, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. And we are back with On Second Thought from Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Virginia Prescott. Earlier this month, President Trump toured the U.S.-Mexico border. In his press conference afterwards, he made headlines.
2: Our country is full. Our area is full. The sector is full. Can't take you anymore. I'm sorry. Can't happen. So turn around.
4: That's the way it is.
2: Fact-checkers were quick
1: to counter that declaration. They cited an aging and shrinking workforce, as well as America's slowing population growth, now at its lowest level since 1937. We're going to hear shortly from two people working to reverse that trend in Atlanta and in Macon. But first to Sonia Hurt. She has an explanation on why some Americans, including the president, feel like our country is full. She's dean of the University of Georgia's College of Environment and Design and joining us from Athens. Hello, Sonia. Hello. Well, let's start with the president's claim. He says the nation is full. You say what?
5: Well, metaphorically, it could be a very effective way of putting um, this idea. I mean, factually, the country is not full because um, the share of land in the United States that is uh, urbanized is still in the single digits. That doesn't mean that we should really it all, and that'll be impossible because, you know, a lot of it is actually inaccessible or, the in mountains and forests and protected areas, uh, but factually speaking, I don't think that you can make the claim that the country's full. So I think if you take the sta- statement um, in a more nuanced way, um, I think the idea perhaps is that, um, you know, if you... Um, Uh, If more people come to the country from other countries, uh, maybe the services that we offer would be too stretched. Uh, There will be potentially an economic burden. So all these things could lead to an argument that we are full, but that would only be true metaphorically.
1: Well, right. So you've studied cultural attitudes or perceptions of population density. Why do you think so many Americans, including the president, do feel like we're cramped for space or, as you said, that we're just cramped for services. Too much is being done and we can't expend any more. Uh, well,
5: this is a long-standing um, American tradition that probably goes back to colonial times and um, you know, some of the people who uh, were the first to develop uh, America's cities, like William Penn, the founder of Philadelphia, uh, back in the day, dreamed that the United, the, the new country, if it were to be a country ever, um, would be different from what he knew of in Europe, because all its towns would be made to be suitable for country gentlemen. Um, And you can look at the writings of many of the founding fathers uh, who were very concerned about ever reaching European densities um, in cities, um, assuming that such densities would actually lead to a corrupt government. So for a very, very long time, um, the American promise for good or bad was somewhat um, inherently related to the idea of space that the individual family uh, will have more space than they could have in other countries, and American towns would be different from those in other countries because they'll be more spatially generous. Um, So there is, I think, a strong cultural historical component to it. um, And to an extent, this was premised on geography, indeed, as compared to uh, many other countries, Per uh, person, um, America is more uh, spatially endowed. But it isn't just the presence of space, of space because actually there are other countries uh, which are even more sparsely populated than ours, and their cities are still very dense. So it's not space itself, but rather, but rather it's perception and how it's intertwined with history and culture that gives people this idea. But the truth of the matter is that uh, potentially, um, it's a difficult comparison to make, but um, American metropolitan areas are of lower density than those anywhere else in the industrialized world.
1: Sonia, I'm going to um, stop you there so, because I know that we ha- we want to get to our other guests, but I appreciate yes, your time. Yes, absolutely. Sonia Hurt, she's dean of UGA's College of Environment and Design. Thanks so much.
5: Absolutely.
1: Now we want to turn to a couple of people who are working hard to increase their city's population and density. Joining me on the line from GPB Macon is Josh Rogers, president and CEO of Newtown Macon. It's a nonprofit public-private partnership with the goal of restoring and establishing downtown Macon as a center of economic, cultural and social activity. Josh, thanks so much.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also
1: with us in the studio, Tim Keene. Honored to have you here, commissioner of city planning for the city of Atlanta. Hello, Hello.
3: Good
1: morning. Well, let's start with Josh. Is Macon full? I mean, what is the population growth (laughs) trend there?
3: Yeah, well, the last census was actually the first census where we didn't lose population in the last uh, 60 years. So our our population is just stabilized and I'm I'm betting the next census is going to show our first uh, significant growth uh, since the 1950s.
1: And uh, how about Atlanta, Tim? Is the city full?
6: Well, the city's way closer to empty than it is full. Really? Honestly, yes. Um, Atlanta is a small city in a big region. In 1970, the city's population was 496,000 in a region of 1.7 million. Today, we're 485,000 in a region of 6 million.
1: So it feels like a dense city. It feels certainly like there's plenty of traffic.
6: Well, it's the opposite of a dense city. It's a a low-dense place, this region is. And it's one of the reasons we have the problems we have. Um, Atlanta will be better, and this is the way cities are. Cities are better with more people. And the problems that we face that are the most difficult problems, let's mention mobility and affordability, for instance, are easier to address with more people. We need to cram people into Atlanta, honestly. So how and, many
1: more people can the city afford? Well, we, we,
6: we're designing for a city of 1.2 million. We're at 485,000, as I said today, and feel that we can achieve that over the next generation of growth.
1: And that's why there are so many construction cranes and so many apartment buildings going up all over Atlanta. Yeah, when
6: you see construction cranes and apartment buildings and disruptions to the traffic flow on streets because of construction, you should smile. This is a city being successful. <laughs>
1: okay, try and convince me, Tim.
6: I'm telling you, <laughs> uh,
1: Josh. This is not quite what's happening in Macon. Although the population, as you said, is growing, but when did that population decline begin that you spoke of?
3: Yeah, it began uh, in the 1960s. Uh, we peaked in the, in the 1950 census, and then had a pretty precipitous decline. And and really, that was just um, a similar trend of the suburbanization of all of America. But I agree with Tim that density solves almost every other problem and that's certainly how we're designing ourselves now is to be enticing for a walkable neighborhood and a high quality of life in a dense downtown area.
1: Tell me some of the characteristic of density. I mean, what we're seeing more of is that sort of, you know, first floor of a place is is commercial, then there's residential up above. Is that what we're talking about, that things are mixed use?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the last, say, generation of... you know, Euclidean zoning where everything was uh, discreet from each other was just a minor blip in the history of human city building and, and really mixed use is what people prefer. So we're seeing the pendulum swing back really quickly to people preferring walkable urban neighborhoods with apartments upstairs and an active street life on the sidewalk.
1: So when it comes to revitalizing Macon's downtown and increasing residents, this is Newtown's top focus is it longtime time making nights or out of towners that you're trying to attract into yeah, the city it, center
3: it is mostly out of towners um, more than 60 percent of our new residents downtown where the population has doubled in the past three years are moving to us from outside of our region and 80 percent of that population are um, millennials so um, we're doing really well with um, young people who are looking for a walkable neighborhood with restaurants bars and housing uh, entertainment uh, and jobs all right there at their doorstep.
1: So how about in Atlanta, Tim? Is it uh, suburbanites or people from elsewhere in Georgia well, that you want to draw to the city?
6: The first thing is to not lose population, of course, that the people that live here are not leaving. And that is the case now, which is good. And that's the most important thing. And then attracting people that are in other parts of the region, but people especially that are moving here, because the Atlanta Regional Commission is projecting that our region will grow by 2.5 million people over that next generation of growth, 25 to 40 years. So that's the equivalent of adding Charlotte and its region to ours over that period of time. So you're talking about a tremendous amount of change. And what we're suggesting, and this is kind of a public service announcement, is that the city should grow in a way that it never has during that period of time as the region grows at that scale so how should it grow well to the that's what we're we're targeting this 1.2 million that's what we're designing the city for is 1.2 million 485 eighty five thousand today and again because what makes cities better than suburbs is that they're cities you know we we can't beat the suburbs at being suburban we we can be a better city and, and atlanta wins when it focuses on that which is a city is a lively place with all kinds of people, diverse people of all income levels and backgrounds. That's what makes a city exciting and successful. So we, we need people. We welcome that. And, and it's a help. It's, it's what will allow Atlanta to be successful.
1: How about there in Macon, Josh? What are you doing to get new people to come to Macon? Are there, you know, tax incentives? Are there other deals besides creating the environment that you want or people want to live in?
3: No, no I, I'd say the number one uh, way we do it is through quality of life and not through incentives. Um, the incentive that we're able to offer people is a really high quality of life in a walkable neighborhood, which unfortunately has become um, an unusual and precious commodity. So really what we focus on is just having the infrastructure of uh, local businesses and um, cool, uh, trendy loft housing um, and knitting that together in a, um, a thriving commercial district, where everything you have is, um, is just walking distance away.
1: Well, revitalization is being tried in cities and towns across the South, but gentrification is never too far behind. Is that something that you are concerned about, Josh, displacing people who cannot afford higher rents and taxes that do come with spiffing things up?
3: There's a, No, absolutely not. Gentrification is not something I worry about. There's an, another term, maybe inclusive housing uh, policy, that is something I worry about. For Macon, uh, downtown had been almost entirely abandoned. So when we're luring people back to move in, there is no displacement. They're taking up previously abandoned space, which is a pretty good formula um, for a revitalizing community. Now, there's a whole separate conversation to be, to be had about whether every neighborhood in the country ought to include um, an economically diverse population. and um, if we're gonna start down that path I think the first place to look at neighborhoods that are failing to provide inclusive housing is not downtowns it's um, the suburban areas that we've uh, allowed developers to build over the last 50 years
1: so what do you hear there well
6: I mean you know we're very concerned about gentrification and the thing is that we're very intentional about it protecting people that are in the city today and ensuring that there's not forcible displacement of people as we grow that's critically important to the city of Atlanta and to Mayor Bottoms. That's part of our focus as a city. But the problem is if you, if you try to restrict the growth of the city and population, you've made your challenge around gentrification harder. It is cities that, that try to stop growth from happening that have the biggest gentrification issue and, and are the hardest to live in lower-income people. Because
1: it costs more money because Absolutely. the housing is
6: limited. No question about it. Think about downtown Atlanta. Downtown Atlanta should have hundreds of thousands of people living there. Every person that we can have living in downtown Atlanta Atlanta is a amazing benefit to the community. And and it does not displace people. We're talking in downtown Atlanta about a place that is unoccupied to, to much too large a degree. Um, and so this isn't just growth for growth's sake. It's it's being intentional in designing a city such that with more people, it becomes a better place.
1: But how about the promises that have, you know, of inclusive housing along the Beltline or affordable housing along the Beltline that haven't been fulfilled?
6: Well, I think, I don't think that that's exactly true. there There's amazing efforts. We just, Mayor Bottoms, um, cut the ribbon on Friday last week of uh, uh, over 100 apartments right at the foot of the existing West Side Beltline. That's just one example of many where there's new affordable housing being built and uh, affordable housing being built and protected along the Beltline and other parts of the city. This is this is one of Atlanta's um, most important priorities and and we're looking at doing doing it in in ingenious ways. You know there isn't one way to do this. There isn't one housing type. There isn't one design. There's not one way to finance. We have to get a lot more, as I said, ingenious about how we do this and that's what Atlanta's working on.
1: Well one of the things we heard from Professor Sonia Heard is, you know, there are new buildings, there are new schools, there are new roads and more that are need to accommodate and also social services. Is Atlanta prepared to and we'll ask the same of Macon, but to grow in those ways to support this growing population that we need in this city, as well, I'm hearing from you.
6: Absolutely. I mean and, and Think about this. We have so much of the infrastructure that we need in Atlanta. Really, our infrastructure su- supports a much larger population than we have. So we're, we're in great shape in Atlanta with regard to the, the infrastructure, the services we need to accommodate a much larger population. And here's an example of how possible this is. Over the last generation of growth, Gwinnett County added 720 to 30,000 people. in Gwinnett County, when that growth started, was small farms and had no infrastructure. And, And they were able to take on that scale of growth. Well, in Atlanta's case, we have the infrastructure. This is where we should be having more people living and working, is in the city, where we've already, as a community, invested so much money in our roads and our schools and all these other things that we need to be a healthy place. I
1: still think that uh, many people who are sitting in traffic right now might argue with you or disagree that we are uh, where the city is accommodating all this growth.
6: Here's the thing about the traffic okay this is something that cities this has been a constant in cities traffic if you're worried about getting rid of traffic you're going to be very disappointed because in every city throughout time traffic gets worse that's what happens in cities as a matter of fact, we always end up in the top 10 of cities in the world when it comes to congestion. We tend to fall between London and Paris. Hmm. If you look at them, it's often the case. And those cities have amazing transit systems right. and are wonderful to walk in, have done great with cycling, and their traffic is still horrific. There's no future without traffic. The issue is that we as a city can transform our streets and make them for people that are walking and riding bikes and going to transit, we can do that and, and, and have great satisfaction with the place we've made. We cannot reduce congestion. That's not a future that's possible in cities, but we can remake our streets.
1: Tim Keene, thank you so much for speaking with us. Sure. Tim Keene is Commissioner of City Planning for the City of Atlanta. Josh, I'm sorry we have to end it there, but I want to thank you so much for speaking with us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it.
1: I'm Virginia Prescott, back with On Second Thought from GPB. We're celebrating International Jazz Day with an Atlanta great, Virginia Shank. She's known by her stage name, VA. She's performing at City Winery tonight in Atlanta, and we asked her to add a couple of songs to our Georgia playlist. We asked music.
0: I'm an old cow from the Rio Grande. I chose that song because I remember my brother singing it to me when I was a child. I'm the youngest of four kids, and it's so in my bones that um, even before I really knew what jazz was, I realized it was already in, in my soma. And
5: I come down from the Rio Grande, and I learn to ride, 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 for I learn to stand. I'm a riding fool who is up to date. I know every trail in the Lone Star State. Cause I ride the range in the Ford V8. Oh, yippee 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 The
0: song is about a Texan, which is very funny for a Georgian to be writing about a Texan. Um, but riding on the range and um, it paints a beautiful picture of that Texas landscape. And so for a lyricist to be able to Create that scenario for us in our heads, um, just as amazing to me.
5: We're O'Cow Han from the Rio Grande, and we come to town just to hear the band. We know all the songs that the Cowboys know about the big corral where the doggies go. We learn them all on the
3: radio. the
0: The second favorite song and artist, um, the artist would be the Almond Brothers.
6: Same to come and go. Yeah.
0: I chose Melissa because it's just an amazing ballad. A personal connection with the band I happened to um, live in Macon Georgia for a short spell and became friends with um, the jazz drummer Jamo and who's one of the only living now founding members of the Almond Brothers and I was actually downtown Macon sitting in with a for a jazz jam and um, apparently he was on drums and I thought well can he can he play jazz drums, you know? And, um, well, sure enough, he did. And we struck up conversation and became fast friends. And actually, he turned me on to so many jazz musicians.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And we can credit J-Mo for bringing his jazz background from the state of mississippi over to georgia and he really was the one who instigated the jazz influence in the jam bands so there we go back to talking about jazz and its influence in current day music
1: Atlanta-based jazz artist Virginia Shank, adding Johnny Mercer's I'm an Old Cow Hand and Melissa from the Almond Brothers to our Georgia playlist. She performs at City Winery in Atlanta tonight. Details on our website, gpbnews.org.
7: Hi, I'm Allison Law, and I host a weekly podcast called Literary Atlanta, For my list of four Southern books, I've selected four novels that have come out in the past 10 years that you may have missed. My favorites often can't be found on the bestseller list. Don't get me wrong, I love a great summer romance or a fast-paced blood-drenched thriller And I'm forever indebted to the classics of Southern literature that I grew up reading and studying, such as To Kill a Mockingbird or A Member of the Wedding by Carson McCullers. But I gravitate toward the quieter books that make me think and to those books that have rich characters who still are speaking to me these days, weeks and years after I've turned the final page Which is somewhat ironic, given that the main character in the first book I've chosen is Mute. The Silence of Bonaventure Arrow by Rita Legansky is set in 1950s Louisiana in the fictional parish of Bayou Sembeline outside of New Orleans. When Bonaventure is born, he does not cry out like typical babies. He grows up making very little noise at all. What only you as the reader know is that while Bonaventure does not speak, He has exceptional powers of hearing that transcend what is happening around him to the past, to the future, to the inner emotions of the people around him, like his mother Dancy, who fears that her grief over the sudden shocking death of Bonaventure's father is hurting her son's development. Bonaventure Arrow could hear conjured charms and sanctified spirits deep in the marrow of New Orleans. He could hear the movements of voodoo queens and the prayers of long-dead saints. He could hear the past and the present. But even had she known all that, Dancy would not have imagined that such hearing was only a bellwether of what was to come. She could not understand that Bonaventure's muteness was not a handicap at all, but a gift—an extraordinary, inexplicable, immeasurable gift that allowed him to hear what no one else could. So it's in Bonaventure's silence that everything happens in this book. He's connected to a woman, a kindred spirit, kind of a voodoo woman named Trinidad Prefontaine, and even to the person who you only know in the book as the wanderer. This is the person who reveals himself to us as the person who killed Bonaventure's father before he was born. So it's really an interesting and beautiful book. For my second Southern book selection... I have another book that takes place in Louisiana, but it's more contemporary. This is My Sunshine Away by M.O. Walsh. This time we're in Baton Rouge in a suburb. and We start out in 1989. At the very open of the book, we learned that Lindy, one of the teenagers growing up in the neighborhood, has been violently assaulted by someone an unknown man or a boy who lay in wait for her. And we discover pretty quickly that the narrator of the book is one of four people suspected of the crime and spend the rest of the book trying to understand who this person is and whether or not he's responsible for hurting this girl and interrupting the peace of this Baton Rouge suburb. I think part of the reason that My Sunshine Away resonated so deeply with me is that Walsh shares stories and details of this time. The narrator and Lindy would have been my contemporaries in high school. The things they discuss and the news stories and the gossip they share are things I would have spent hours on the phone talking about with my friends. And there's always this thriving, humming, did he or didn't he element that keeps you turning the pages. The third book, Wilton Barnhart's Look Away, Look Away, is Southern satire at its finest. He based the sometimes over-the-top and always razor-sharp-witted members of the Johnston family of Charlotte, North Carolina, on the alumni and donors that he encountered over the years in his role as the director of a writing program at North Carolina State University. Wilton Barnhart often had to spend time navigating the hierarchies and family histories during polite conversation at the school's fundraisers and dinners. You'll find yourself laughing at the dialogue and the situations that these characters get themselves into, just to give you a little flavor of the wonderful dialogue that you'll find in Look Away, Look Away. Sunday was a weekly battle that Annie relished. She not only wanted to skip church, she wanted to elucidate other family members in the folly of their going. While others arrived at the breakfast table dressed for service, Annie would waltz down late waving around a blockbuster video bag. While you're listening to The Shaman Drone on and on, I'll be here enjoying the Sunday paper, my orange juice, and a Preston Sturgis comedy. This would goes on to, there's a back and forth between the parents and the kids and the other kids, Annie's brother and sister, are like, why does she get to stay home and we have to go to church? And the mother answers, because one child bound for the fiery pit is enough. And she took her last sip of coffee. So it's just a tremendously fun and, again, satirical book. For my last book, we're traveling back to Georgia for A Good Hard Look by Anne Napolitano. And when I think of Milledgeville, Georgia, I think of one of the patron saints of Southern literature who spent the better part of her life in that town. I'm talking about Mary Flannery O'Connor. And indeed, Flannery and her mother Regina are prominent characters in A Good Hard Look. But again, this is a novel. This is kind of a fictionalized version of what her life and some of the other townspeople's lives are like in Milledgeville. The characters all have different narratives and different things going on. One of the backdrops in Milledgeville is the state hospital where uh, the mentally ill there so all of this plays a role it's it's small town georgia and we get a little bit of an imagining of what life was like for flannery when she has this fictional relationship with a man named melvin who's married and has a little girl and flannery who is crippled starts he starts taking her out in his car and giving her driving lessons and regina does not approve of this relationship even though it's platonic So we're always thinking about Flannery and what her life as a writer was like, but this is an imagining of what Flannery O'Connor's life as, as a person living in that town with her mother and dealing with an illness that would cripple her and eventually take her life, what that was like. And then we have all of this intrigue with the people in the town who are just dealing with the life of being in a small town in the South.
1: In Macon, classical musicians are stepping off stage and into the ICU. GPB's Grant Blankenship reports on music as medicine. Oh,
4: the intensive care unit at Navicent Health's Hospital in Macon is like ICUs everywhere. Nurses and doctors constantly checking in on the seriously ill, all while trying to keep the noise down. But there's one sound you can't escape
7: so much beeping.
4: That's Nevison ICU nurse, Taylor Rickard.
7: These monitors beep, the, the machines beep, the pumps beep, everything beeps. You get home at night, it still beeps.
4: Rickard says the beeps are important, of course, because they communicate about the conditions of patients. She couldn't do her job without them. But in terms of emotional well-being, the beeping can be tough. That's why it was a relief when violist Keone Bolding unpacked his instrument near one of the ICU nurses' stations on a recent morning, and launched into a set of mostly Christmas favorites. Bolding was invited here by Avinash Barr, one of the ICU's doctors. Barr doesn't play music himself.
1: I play the radio.
4: (laughs) But about a year ago, he recognized the value of having music in what can be an emotionally chilly place.
2: It's cold. It's very clinical. I felt the need that at least we needed to introduce the concept of at least something more human or humane in the ICU to kind of make it a softer environment.
4: And it's not just that music on the ward feels nice. Barr says there's science behind this.
2: Uh, There's some studies that have shown that when you use music, you've reduced the anxiety that patients have, the fear that patients have.
4: One study showed that music before and after surgery was better at reducing anxiety than anti-anxiety medication. Studies suggest classical music works best here. For the elderly, playing the music they enjoyed in their youth has documented benefits.
2: You reduce some delirium or episodes of confusion because it's something they can relate to.
4: Studies suggest not all music is created equal for the purposes of intensive care. Jazz? It might require too much mental attention to be therapeutic. And heavy metal and techno can apparently cause heart arrhythmias in a clinical setting, so no turning it up to 11. Dr. Barr says musicians in the hallway are a nice start, but he's not sure patients hear it from the other end of the ward.
2: Uh, but yeah, so I think some of the ICs do have the facilities for that where music's piped in directly to a patient's bedside.
4: That would allow more personal music choices, too. Keone Boling plays a set at either end of the ward so everyone can hear. Danine Schumann is among those outside their loved one's rooms listening in. Schumann shoots video on her phone as Boling plays and sings along until he's done. And then she checks to see how her father-in-law enjoyed it.
7: Oh, just to see the look on
0: his face. Music just makes your soul just dance. It
4: turns out music can be good
3: medicine, too. That's GPB's Grant Blankenship.